We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, everybody. What's going on? There we go. And welcome back to another episode of The Truth Perspective on Sod Talk Radio. Happy New Year. And today, manning and womaning the microphones, we have a, a slightly new rotation of Sod editors. Now we've got Tiffany. Hello, everybody. Karen. Howdy. And William. Good afternoon. And I am Harrison Cayley, your host as usual. Last week, we kind of summed up 2014. It is a new year, 2015, and it's, so far, it's looking like this year we'll probably see more of the same, because a lot of what went on last year is still in progress. So we have all that fun stuff to look, to look forward to. But today, we're going to be talking about a range of subjects, some things that have happened over the past week or so since our last show. And then we're going to go into some history, some things that happened a long time ago, not so long ago, and stuff like that. So uh, I guess to kick things off, um, we're going to go to William with a little update on markets, economies, and all that fun stuff. Oh, yeah, lots of fun. Stock market, breaking new highs at the end of the year. After six years, it's uh, up 18000 all good news, right? Yeah, everything's looking just fine and dandy. Stock investors have probably taken the blue pill by now. Well, continues to go on an uptrend. Well, hell, keep going, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, I've got a bunch of statistics here just to see how how good we're doing. This is a courtesy of Michael Snyder from the end of the American Dream blog, who put together a lot of these statistics for us. Uh, let's see now. Price of ground beef just hit a brand new record high of four dollars and twenty cents a pound. Ten years ago, it was only two dollars and twenty-one cents a pound. Yep, must be doing good. Twenty percent of all American families are on food stamps. Yep, but the market keeps on soaring, so the rest of the country probably doesn't seem to care. An astounding thirty-one percent of all U.S. young adults ages of 18 to 34, are currently living with their parents. Ah, but the good news is the demand for tacky basement decor is at an all-time <laughs> high. <clears throat> of course, you got a $1.2 trillion student loan debt, 84% increase just from 2008. And 50% of those are dependent on their parents, or financially dependent, uh, even two years out of getting out of college. Now, 48% of Americans can immediately come up with $400 in emergency cash without borrowing it or selling. That's almost half of all the Americans, and there's 320 million of us. Over 52% 
in a survey conducted, uh, Americans cannot afford the house that they are currently living in right now. According to the Census Bureau report that was released in December, 65% of all children in America are living in a home that receives some form of aid from the federal government. And right now, 70% of all government spending goes towards independence-creating programs. Over 14,000 McDonald's locations throughout the United States. But payday lenders have over 20,000. Those are the guys who uh, sell real short-term loans at an extremely high interest rate. Yep, Americans are doing so well, they have to borrow money constantly. Social Security Administration reports that 52% of all American workers made less than $30,000 a year. That's half of the population again, folks. Yeah, let's see. Back in 1980, there were only about 3,000 SWAT raids conducted in the United States. But today, there are more than 80,000 SWAT raids per year in this country. It's a lot. Yes, indeed. <laughs> have to use all that military equipment that they spent their money on. It is estimated that there are at least 100,000 underage sex workers in the United States. In case you were wondering, yeah, that means we're a very sick nation. Oh, and the government's supposed to be uh, of the people, by the people, and for the people. But at this point, more than half the members of Congress are millionaires. There are currently more than 2.4 million people behind bars in America since 1980. The number of people incarcerated in our prison has quadrupled. According to the National Center on Family Homelessness, there are now 2.5 million homeless children in the United States. Unbelievable. Almost 10 million more Americans have enrolled in Medicaid since Obama first launched In America today, more than 30 million Americans are taking antidepressants. What did you say the population of the U.S. was? 320 million. Hmm. But overall, nearly 70% of all Americans are currently on at least one prescription drug, according to the Mayo Clinic. Hmm. That sounds low. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already thoroughly impressed. Yeah, no, these, these stats sound great to me. It's just like on the up. And thoroughly depressed. Can we take a moment so I can go commit suicide and <laughs> come back in five minutes? More than $40 million have been spent just on vacations for Barack Obama and his family since he's been in the White House. Must be doing real well. But an astounding 49 million Americans, about 6.5%, are considered to be facing food insecurity at this point. Oh, yeah. Speaking of Russia, population of Bangladesh, which has 156,000, uh, 156 million people, is actually larger than the population of Russia. But nobody's scared of Bangladesh. <laughs> Let's see. So, the current size of the U.S. national debt $18 trillion. That just went up $100 billion just on the last day of the year alone. And that's 
up $1 trillion just uh, for the fiscal year that just ended. What's a trillion? Trillion? Is that Let's how see. many zeros? That has 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 zeros. Oh. It, it, you can't even fathom that. It's just so so large. I would give the United States 12 zeros. And here's a good one. There are five too-big-to-fail banks in the United States, and each have more than $40 trillion worth of exposure to derivatives. Each one. That's the sword of Damocles. They could destroy our financial system and our entire economy at any time. But they don't actually have the cash in the bank. Well, of course not. What is in the bank? Just a bunch of computer screens? Virtual money. Virtual money. <laughs> so, does that really make sense? No, nothing seems to be very linear. It's uh, definitely keeping Americans busy with their own problems and prevents them from seeing any, any of the bigger picture. Of course, uh been real busy at pitting everybody against each other for uh, race, religion, sex, just about anything, you name it. Don't pay attention to what's going on in the world. Just uh, hunker down, take care of yourself, and don't worry about it. The government will take care of everything else. You know, the American, America really is an exceptional country. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> it's exceptionally bad in so many different ways. Uh, and, uh, you know, so what do... What do you think average Americans actually think about the United States? Do they think of themselves as this great exceptional country when so many of them, like, are they just that brainwashed? or Do they even on? have time to think with all the scrounging and the food stamps and the payday loans and the student loan debt? Where's the time to think? Mm-hmm. Well, 65% of them, to, there is something wrong with the government. Of course, the astounding part of that number is it's only 65%. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess a lot of those figures, well, there are people in any country, especially like the United States, any country that's based on this kind of dog-eat-dog mentality, there are the people that matter and the people that don't matter. So, of course, there's going to be a a segment of the population that just doesn't care about the rest. So, those are the ones that probably, whose opinions really matter. That means 35% are the government. Yeah. Well, the government and authoritarian followers, so the ones that, you know, just will go along with anything that the government says just because they're the authorities in power. And they're on the government's teats. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like Maybe Tip they said. feel threatened if, if they protest against the government. Their monthly check is going to be gone. Their Social Security is going to be gone. Exactly. No more food stamps. So. Yep. Yeah, because you get people into this loop where they have to work so hard and do so much to get so little that they become dependent on that little. And to rock the boat and do anything that would change that situation threatens to have that all that taken away. So it's a, it's really the perfect system for kind of slavery by deceit, where all these people are just trapped in this system and can't do anything because they're struggling just to survive. Well, we're also programmed to do that. I mean, uh, we have no free fall skills. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, back in back in the day, 
you you know you had your your own food sources, you had um, your own way to make a living, that family and and kept you in warm clothes and and you know firewood in the winter and uh, all that is very very different. Yeah, we're totally dependent on all these external sources for everything to keep to keep us going. There's no there's no sense of self sufficiency or even the skills to allow that. Or or even the vision to um, if if you did get off the the bandwagon, what could you possibly do, mm-hmm. and how could you do it? Yeah, I guess. Well, the the sad thing is, is there are ways, and as as uh, depressing and kind of funny about the statistic of all those youths and young adults still living with their parents, it's actually probably a a pretty good model mm-hmm. if you if you look at it in the right way to have because the way Western society is, you know, you've got your nuclear family, usually a pretty small family. Then the kids turn 18 and they move away. You've got usually what, like from two to four people living in a house? And for two to four people or, you know, whatever the actual figure is, to support themselves in that situation is very difficult. If you get a whole bunch of people, if you have a, a large family, if you have, you know, people that come just come to live together, that breaks down the the costs so much that the shared costs um just make make it so much easier but we're that's uh, anti-american yeah. is it? you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make your own way in the world no depending on other people yeah <laughs> i guess so but it's sad that those college students can't even yeah afford to live on their own mm-hmm. they probably don't even have a job to support the family that they're living with yeah and they probably hate their parents and don't really want to live there. So you know, it's I think it's a good idea in theory, but even in practice, it doesn't it doesn't play out the way that it could. So, wow, thanks, William, for depressing us so much. My pleasure. In the first fifteen minutes. Um, any anything else you wanted to add there? Is that that pretty much it? I think that's it. Yeah, that's enough. Yeah, what a great way to start out the year. Um, well, no, you know, we're being sarcastic, but it, it, it is horrible. And when you look at the disparity between the what life is really like and then the image that you see on TV and it's projected by, you know, presidents and congressmen about what America is, the disparity couldn't be much greater. And so I think that is really depressing. But moving on. Um, Sorry to burst the champagne bubbles. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, going back, just going back to, you know, living a good life, I hope that all our listeners had a a good new year with family and friends and joy and and fun. Because, you know, that's really the only place that you can look for any kind of uplifting feeling in this world is with the people around you. So, and that's really the only way you can get things done either is with a group of people that, you know, you trust and love. So, you don't have someone like that, I'd say go out and find. Because you need peeps. Community. Mm -hmm. So, moving on. Last week, um, we we talked on our last show about some of the big events in 2014. And the trend kind of continued right until the end. Um, some of the biggest stories from last year, like we mentioned, were um, were dealt with planes 
plane disasters, flight disasters. So, of course, we had MH370 totally disappearing in March without a trace. Still, there's still no trace of it anywhere, which is thoroughly enigmatic. Then in July, we had MH17 shot down over Donetsk, um, followed a week later by the Al or Air Algerie AH5017. Um, that flight encountered some bad weather and just totally um, like charred. It was like burnt to a crisp. So that was a weird one. I think there were around 150 people on board. So all the you know on all three of these flights so far, all passengers and crew have been killed. And then in Brazil in August, we had the flight that uh, that killed the one of the presidential candidates. And now December 28th, another Malaysia connected flight, Air Asia, which is a Malaysian company, uh, or has you know controlling interests in that company or something like that. But Malaysia is a big part of it. So Air Asia QZ8501 um, disappeared on yeah on the 28th. And so for a few days there was no sign of it. They were searching the area. It was on its way from Indonesia to Singapore, and it kind of disappeared off radar um, over the the sea there. And so there was bad weather. They couldn't find anything for a few days. Um, but since then, uh, a few details have come out. First of all, some of the radar reports that um, the flight was traveling. Well, it, there was because of the bad weather. The the pilot had requested to gain altitude about 5,000 feet, and then after that, radio communications just went out. There was no no sign of it. And but from the radar. Um, it, it looks like the plane made a very steep and fast ascent, as fast as a jet fighter, one guy called it. They say um, um, it, it could have flown into a very strong updraft um, at a speed that was impossible um, for a, a plane of that type under pilot control. So something weird happened. And then after reaching that height and climbing, it, it, it came to a an extreme slowdown. So its ground speed was like 60 kilometers an hour or something ridiculous, like a very steep vertical fall. So it essentially fell like straight down out of the air. And Indonesian aviation analyst Jerry Sojetman said uh, the way it was going down is bordering on the edge of logic. Hmm. So there's something really weird about what happened. Um, despite the weather in the few um, clean or clear times of day in the past few days, they have managed to find some wreckage that they say is part of the plane and found about 30 bodies, about five of which have been identified so far and are on their way back to families. So they have been finding things, but there's no, they haven't found any big sections of the plane yet. Um, they're theorizing that it's on the, the, the seabed there. Um, they've, like I said, they've only found tiny pieces and some bodies. Some of these bodies were still strapped into their air seats. So... That is another story that will be interesting to see how it develops, um, you know, what what they find and um, what they can determine, if anything, about what happened to this plane. Now, we'll get back to that. I just want to go into a little bit of a timeline over the last week since then. Also on December 28th, another AirAsia flight, AK-6242, was on its way to Malaysia and had to, had to make an emergency landing because of, quote, technical problems. The next day, December 29th, Virgin Atlantic 
um, a flight um, going to, it looks like, uh, Gatwick Airport had to circle around the airport for hours to malfunctioning landing gear. The same day, December 29th, a Jet Airways flight from Mumbai to Kathmandu had to make another emergency landing, this time because one of its engines caught on fire. Now, they say that they had a, there's a word for it, bird ingestion or something like that, where a bird flies into the into the engine and starts a fire. So they said that's probably what it was. So A bird with a match? Yeah. <laughs> but because um, that could have been it, but there might be other explanations for it. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Also on December 29th, this is the third event on the 29th, an EasyJet flight from Geneva to Manchester had to make a medical, it had a medical emergency, had to turn back and make an emergency landing. So one of the, one of the passengers had a medical emergency and had to be taken to a hospital. And then uh, again, December 29th, same day, U.S. Airways from Manchester to Philadelphia. Um, uh, passengers reported flames shooting out from the underneath of the plane, and they got video footage of it while they were there. They said that they were hearing large bangs follow, followed by puffs of, um, like bursts of flames coming out from underneath the plane. So that one... Um, also made an emergency landing. Luckily, no one was hurt. The plane wasn't destroyed or anything like that, but very strange. The next day, December 30th, Thai Airways from Bangkok to London had a a hydraulic leak on board, had to circle and turn around, go back, another emergency landing. Then January 1st, Air France, Paris to Washington, had to make an emergency landing in Montreal. And the (laughs) explanation for this one is pretty funny. One of the first class seats overheated and, you know, triggered an emergency uh, signal in the plane so they had to land. So <laughs> I just thought that was funny. First class seat. They have Are seats. the seats heated? They have, yeah, I know. They have heated seats on there? I didn't know that. That's really first class. <laughs> and then um, January 2nd. So yesterday, um, a plane was br- blown off a runway on, at an airport on the Isle of Lewis. There were 77 mile per hour winds. And, yeah, the plane just blew right off the runway there. So a lot of, you know, minor but strange plane events with the the one big one on the 28th all coming around in the same cluster. I just thought that was an interesting cluster of events there right at the end of the year. I've got that uh, Twilight Zone theme song playing in my Mm -hmm. head. (laughs) So it's bad enough that I'm buried up to my neck in student debt. Now I can't even get on a plane plane (laughs) with confidence. Yeah, maybe that's... That's why uh, airline stocks are so low, I guess, tied into the start. But one more plane story. Now, this is this is the funniest one. Because around the same time, December 30th, maybe the day, day or two prior to that, Al-Qaeda, in their official magazine, because Al-Qaeda has a magazine, you know that. Well, it's online, but, you know, it's still a magazine. Al-Qaeda online. Yeah. <laughs> Al-Qaeda today. Coming at you from the heart of terrorist underground caves all over the world. (laughs) Yeah, so in their magazine, they released an article by Sheikh Nasser Al-Ainsi. The name of the article was Destination Airport. Guess what's on the menu? So Sheikh Sheikh Nasser in this article uh, said that, quote, lone mujahideen were, quote, the West's worst nightmare. Now, of course, yeah, okay, so first of all, Mujahideen, why are you going to even use that word when everyone knows the Mujahideen were created and trained by the CIA? I mean, at least come up with a 
a better name that doesn't have so many links to the United States and the people that created you. So, <laughs> first off, okay, okay. I give I give six zeros to Sheikh Nasser Al Ainsi for that one. <laughs> but uh, so the article proceeds to give tips to potential jihadis on how to make bombs, evade airport security, and then publicize their actions. They also outlined uh, potential targets. So Al-Qaeda is uh, maybe just um, riding on the coattails of all this airplane chaos going on and really trying to get their message out. Sounds um, like the prepackaging. <laughs> reminded me. The whole thing about evading airport security is that about a week before that, on December 21st, WikiLeaks released the little CIA manual to its agents on how to evade airport security when traveling into Europe. So I just thought that was a little funny. You know, CIA had their manual released, and then maybe Al-Qaeda said, well, wait a second, you know, we should have something like that. So uh, They cut and pasted. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was written by the same people, actually. <laughs> and um, so oh, back to this article. So first on the list of the potential targets, our U.S. carriers, uh, United and Delta, followed by British Airways and EasyJet. So there was an oh, there was an that was that uh, that EasyJet. That was the flight with the the medical emergency. So maybe she just had a a panic attack because mm-hmm. she was afraid of jihadis. Mm-hmm. Could have been it. Ebola jihadis. Yeah. I I think that's probably what happened. Is that she was afraid of Ebola jihadis giving her a hug. Uh, also, Air France and Dutch KLM, um, but the big Arab airliners like Emirates and Qatar Airways, were notably absent. Mm. Hmm. So, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, everyone's got their favorites, so you got to give some Why do they like airports and airplanes so much is my question. Why not malls or hospitals? Okay. Yeah, that's that's really the only, only explanation. <laughs> because, yeah, well, really, really, if you're going to be a... Well, no, I'm not going to give advice to, to potential terrorists, but I'll just say that you know, an attack on a a mall would be a lot worse than, uh, you know, an airline. Because think of all the security you have to go through to get on an airline. I mean, these jihadis, are they really willing to go through people, you know, ruffling through their underwear and, you know, touching them where they don't want to be touched? It's a lot easier just to ignore well, all that hassle. Why even go through security in the first place? Why don't you just stand at the front door of the mm-hmm. airport and set your bomb off there? It's still an airport, which they really like, but they really want to be on the plane for some reason. I don't Um, know. Maybe the CIA just doesn't want us to go anywhere. Yeah, I think that's it. And they've already established the the plane terror narrative with 9-11. So it's that that paranoia switch that has been installed in most Americans and a lot of people around the world since 9-11, that just the the image unconsciously, subconsciously just evokes this terror response. And so just, you know, it's so easy to flick and people are I I'll have to look at the statistics. I'll have to look at the statistics. I'm pretty sure a lot of people are probably scared of flying, just in general. I know a lot mm-hmm. of people who have been terrified of flying, so you just add that onto the fear and that ups the response. And also, um, you know, we've talked a lot um on SOT and probably on previous shows, about airport security and how it really is a joke. I mean, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't prevent terrorism. It's solely designed just to make you more servile and mm-hmm. to accept the fact that you have no rights and just to humiliate you. 
soon they'll have us be stripped naked and probed. Yeah. And they do make a lot of money off those naked body scanners, too. Mm-hmm. So those are, those are probably some of the real reasons why there's this big focus on flying and planes. It has nothing to do with terrorism. But that's uh, that's exposing the, the man behind the curtain. Um, but, okay. Oh, so also in the Al-Qaeda magazine, there's an interview with an extremist called AK, AQ, so Al-Qaeda chef, AQ chef, who says lone wolf attacks are the way forward because none knows none knows him but Allah. He has no relationship with any group or individuals. Has no relationship with any group or individual. Oh, I don't know. The lone wolf. The lone wolf has no relationship. I with guess any? so. Yeah, because none knows him but so the lone wolf. None knows the lone wolf but Allah. He has no relationship with any group or any individuals. From AQ Chef. Okay, so yeah, I get that. Doesn't make he's sense just he's just making sure that everyone has a job <laughs> with with no employer. <laughs> so yeah, Al Qaeda in the news again with their fancy magazine. They should really like you know go to a big publisher and mm. get a nice glossy magazine and get advertising. It'd be interesting to see what kind of ads that they'd have in the magazine. I, you know, I'd check it out just for the fun. <laughs> No, I wouldn't. So, okay, back to AirAsia. Just a couple of weird things about it. First, there was a one of the family members received a text message. Or actually, now, you know, we can't necessarily trust this because it was related third hand. So the text message was sent to a friend. The friend then told the relative that they had received the text message. But the message said that they made an emergency landing in Belitung Timur and that everyone was safe. So uh, I haven't seen any follow-up reports to that, but it is a bit weird, to say the least, um, why they would say that. If they had any, if, so if it was said, why it was said, and, and what led this passenger to make that kind of text message um, reminds me kind of of the the phone, the cell phone still working uh, for MH370. You can look that up. Um, and then another weird thing, an apparent prediction of this type of crash made on Chinese version of Reddit by username Landlord. I'll read some quotes from what he said. He's talking about the Black Hand, shadowy evil group of conspirators. He says, the Black Hand has hijacked and shot down MH370 and MH17. Now the Black Hand are targeting AirAsia to ruin this airline because it too belonged to Malaysia. Given how powerful the Black Hand are, I suggest that all Chinese thinking about traveling to avoid AirAsia so that you don't disappear like those on MH370. You could be happily vacationing, working, or studying abroad, but if you go on Malaysian Airline or AirAsia, you're dead. Be careful, everyone. All you civilians, get away from the airline. You can still hide. All those that see the post can, can still save themselves. Once everything cools down, then it would be safe to travel to Malaysia. Life is precious, and your safety is important. So interesting that life is precious. <laughs> yeah, life is precious. contradictory. <laughs> so, um, yeah, weird that they'd single out Air Asia in this kind of crazy conspiratorial post right before it happened. Um, I don't know, maybe the dude was just psychic because the rest of it is kind of you know total disinformation. I mean, you could say that there was a black hand behind MH17, but. 
I don't think there's any really good ev- good evidence to show that that was what was behind 370, or even this latest AirAsia one. You know, we'll see what what comes out, but so far it looks like something other than you know some black operation. But getting to that, what could be the answer? Well, so the plane was traveling. It makes it goes up really fast, then pretty much stalls and goes down really fast. Well, one of the things that hasn't been in the news much is, of course, the very big um, upward trend that we're seeing with fireballs and meteors and comet fragments. Um, You can check out the American Meteor Society uh, website for the stats on, and if you look at the some graphs, actually check out. uh, Sought editor Pierre Lesko Drones and Lorna Yachik's book, Earth Changes in the Human Cosmic Connection. There's some great graphs in there showing the pretty much exponential growth in fireball reports. Probably somewhat indicative of increased reporting, but when you look at the numbers, it's a large part of that has got to be that there are more and more fireballs being cited, more and more uh, fragmentation events where you actually see the, the, the bolide explode into multiple fragments. And, of course, think back to, was it February of 2013? Yeah, when the the meteor exploded over Chelyabinsk. Now, that one exploded at a height of 18.4 miles. That's about, I think that's 90,000-ish feet up with with a a force of about uh, 500 kilotons of TNT. That's about 20 to 30 times the explosion at Hiroshima. So if you think about how high that was and the fact that it blew out the windows on the ground for, like, you know, thousands of buildings and homes, you know, um, just a tremendous amount of force coming from that shockwave. And so when you consider that event and events like it, the fact that they are increasing in frequency around the planet, um, I think that might be a possible explanation for what happened to the Air Asia flight. You have a massive shock wave. Mm-hmm. The shock wave travels a certain distance and just slams the plane down, you know, kind of nullifying any of that or a lot of that forward force, turning it nose down and just driving it down into the ocean. What can make the plane go up really fast? Well, they were saying there's another explanation. So far, some people are saying that it was just one of those weird extreme weather things. So it caught an extreme updraft and then an extreme downdraft. And so basically just the the wind just kind of threw this plane around. And who knows, you know, the weather was pretty crazy, but, um, you know, the skies are pretty crazy in general with comets and fireballs too. So, you know, I wouldn't rule out um, an explanation like like an overhead, what do they call it, airburst. Mm Mm-hmm because those things happen a lot. And if you think about Chelyabinsk and imagine, you know, imagine if a plane was 30,000 feet in the air, it probably would have experienced a little bit more of a shockwave than, you know, 30,000 feet down. So, um, and that, and there have, in the past few years, there have been several plane um, incidents or disasters that could could possibly, um, you know, there, there's evidence that suggests that this could be an explanation for one of them. But it looks like we've got a caller, Kent from West Virginia. So, Kent, are you there? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing I want to comment about, you're talking about the um, large number of increased sightings of these meteors. Um, yeah. Now, we, we just heard a couple of days ago the CIA came out and uh, admitted that all these uh, sightings back in, I guess, the late 50s where UFO yeah. sightings where people were actually their um, U-2 spy plane. So uh, uh-huh. uh, dial it forward 50-some years. God knows what they're doing now. So it's probably uh, our friends up there doing playing games and, you know, and having fun, you know, with uh, new new technology. So that could be an explanation for all those uh, weird sightings. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think it could definitely be an explanation for some sightings. But um, when you look at when you read the actual reports, they're pretty consistently they um, they sound and look like what we know fireballs are. So unless the CIA is going up there and and actually imitating fireball effects, you know, I think that the, the, the at least the vast majority of these sightings that we're seeing are probably actually really real fireballs. What do you think about that? Well, that's uh, that's. Quite possible. I mean, you're the expert. I mean, you've read up on it, so I haven't. I was just uh, trying to connect the connect the dots. And uh, well, you know, uh, um, you know, it could be one or the other, but you know, probably yeah. a good bit of it's natural. You know, the cyclical thing, I guess, or, or you know, yeah. or we don't really know what cycle we're moving into. You know, so I guess, uh, you could be right. So I just that was just an observation there, you know, because. Um, wouldn't trust them not to do anything, you know. It could be, oh, no, um, sure. it, could be a, it could be a weapon they have up there firing uh, firing missiles and seeing how far they go and how far they burn up, sort of thing, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Oh no, well, yeah. And when you think about, I mean, some of the some of the weird sightings that have been seen over the past few years, the first explanation that they always or they usually give, there's a number of them, is that they are doing a missile test. Now, yeah. sometimes you can actually verify this, and they actually were doing a missile test, and the missile tests do look pretty weird, and they do look like um, like these comet fragments. So, so yeah, I'm sure that uh, some of them are are these types of things. And when you when you think about the missile test, was it really a conventional missile test, or maybe were they testing something different? You know, I don't know. We can't really know that, but it's a good idea, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Kent. Okay. All right, bye-bye. Take care. Well, actually, you know, we're, I wanted to talk about that CIA UFO thing, but we'll save that for later because that's a kind of that's a kind of thing that you save for the end of the show. <laughs> but um, moving on, we're gonna we're gonna tie all this together. Just wait and see how we do it. But uh, next, uh, Karen's been looking into a little event from a long time ago in a place far, far away. So why don't you tell us a little well, bit Well, it's an event that happened a long time ago, but it's still under uh, currently investigation and, and try, trying to find uh, facts and clues. Um, came across an article uh, that talked about the Belize's Blue Hole, which is an underwater cave that's offshore in the Barrier Reef. Um, and there has been uh, a little research group that has gone into the cave and, and uh, done some some uh, testing, and they feel that the sediment values um, comparing titanium to the aluminum in the sediment has uh, proven that extreme drought occurred uh, at the time when the Mayan civilization disintegrated. Supposedly, the, the Mayan 
um, completely disappeared with the occurrence of another dry spill. So they're, they're trying to tie this all together. And this is not a new theory, but it is something that uh, occasionally somebody picks up and um, tries to add some values to it and uh, tries to prove it all over again. But I think there's um, maybe other factors that are influencing the, uh, the droughts, um, the, the changes in, in climate, uh, which ultimately affects whatever civilization, whether it's Maya or, or somebody else. Um, and so the main driver of the drought is supposed to be a shift in the intertropical convergence zone, which is a weather system um, that, that goes kind of around the middle of the, the, the equator. Um, it's where the, the two trade winds from the northeast and the south southeast come together. Um, and it has a significant wind field convection activity, which could very well lift up an airplane and uh, toss it somewhere. Um, and, it's, and it's driven by solar heating. Um, these winds have a rising circular motion, and uh, occasionally they, they move poleward, um, and they travel at 16 kilometers above the surface. So they, they definitely could have, you know, an uplift kind of factor. Um, during the, the Mayan decline, uh, there definitely was uh, some sort of drought, and their monsoon system seems, seemed to have missed the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, this, this system uh, of drought went from 800 A.D. to 900 A.D. So it was uh, about 100 years of in and out of, of drought and extreme drought. Um, and, this, and this happens to happen when there are big declines in solar activity. Um, and when that happens, you also have declines in hurricane intensity and frequency. So there's there's a few things to connect um, that create you know, drought patterns, and uh, so, so they and and these patterns come from other things besides uh, the kinds of, of testing that they did in the Belize Blue Hole. Now what they did was they they tried to get titanium and aluminum to correspond to periods of less rainfall, and when the titanium uh, is released through a lot of rainfall. It goes down to the streams and it reaches the ocean, and then and then it it goes into the sediment, and that's where they found it in the in the blue hole. Um, from 800 AD to 1000 AD, uh, there was cold weather. Uh, you think of droughts as being a hot weather thing, but it was it was cold weather. And the interval between 800 and 1000 AD was the driest period of the middle of the late Holocene epoch. Um, during that time, also, Mono Lake in the Sierra Nevada had an epic period of severe persistent drought that lasted from 892 to, 12, to 1112 AD. That was 220 years. The Amazon Basin uh, had its greatest uh, drought from 700 to 800 A.D., and then again from 1,000 to 1,100 A.D. Patagonia had a cold period for 900 to 1,070 A.D. That was their first epic drought. Then they had a warm period um, with a second epic drought, and then it was followed by another cold period 
with another drought. So the it seems like temperature doesn't really have to be a determining factor for droughts. Um, and it seems to happen uh, in in the reverse side of the coin with deluges. Uh, in 1550, for example, there was a massive deluge in the Peruvian coastal plain, uh, resulting in 50 feet of water and mud, but it was followed by a prolonged 32-year drought. So um, they, they seem to have a, a big correlation, but what about comets and asteroids and meteor strikes? Now, these, these are things that um, also have aluminum and titanium. Um, so I'm thinking that maybe in all the all of the research there has not been an account of extraterrestrial deposits and activities during the periods of comet and meteor in meteorite bombardment. Um, each meteor swarm uh, has its heaviest debris that spans over a couple hundred years and two meteor showers per year that we currently have. So that's that's a lot of um, cosmic bombardment that we don't usually think about. This bombardment, the debris that we get from this, has 100 to 300 tons of dust daily added to our atmosphere. And this is the edge of our atmosphere. This is, this is 800 miles up. So we are constantly replenishing um, whatever is swirling around there's there's no way to calculate where it's going to land if and when it does get down to the surface. Some cosmic dusters. Yes, some very cosmic dusters. Um, and, and a lot of this comes from the, the chondrite meteorites, and that's that's the kind of a meteorite that the Allende meteorite uh, was, which is one of the most most examined, most famous meteorites um, that was, that contained pre-solar grains, which is essentially stardust. In that stardust was Yes, you guessed it, aluminum and titanium. Um, and just a little background, all meteors seem to come from comets. Mm -hmm. And all meteoroids are com come from asteroids. And most meteors from comets burn up in the atmosphere <clears throat> because comets vaporize easily. But those that re reach the ground then weather very quickly. So what that means is that they titanium that would be found in a meteorite that that came from this source uh, would have the outside layers taken off rather rapidly, which which means that then this titanium can flow down the stream and go you know go into the ocean and in, increase that sediment and that mm -hmm. sample that is has been taken out of the hole. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> Excuse me. When meteoroids reach the atmosphere, they encounter friction, and so you know they they burn off pieces of dust. But mm -hmm. then there are there are airbursts. There there are the bolides that mm -hmm. that explode. Um, and you would think that well, okay, an exploding uh, bolide that's that's got to kind of destroy everything within it. But no, it doesn't. Doesn't destroy aluminum and it doesn't just shrapnel <laughs> destroy titanium because they were one of the pre-solar uh, ingredients that that it takes a really really high hot heat mm -hmm. to form it so it takes a really high hot heat 
to dissolve it. So mm-hmm. it they it they definitely would be to the ground. Um, so uh, running into uh, impacting dust particles out in space, um, the solar cells from the Hubble uh, have shown uh, little impact craters, mm-hmm. and within those impact craters are aluminum and titanium. <laughs> The Stardust, Stardust mission flew through the coma of Comet Wild 2, and it collected dust particles, and that had magnesium, calcium, aluminum, and titanium. No. Yes. <laughs> and uh, another compelling fact is that aluminum and titanium are also present in volcanic outputs from deep within our planet. So every time a volcano goes off and throws dust up in the air and it goes and swirls around and it goes, you know, like around the world 17 times before it actually lands somewhere, uh, it's aluminum and titanium. Mm-hmm. And, and and if a meteor strikes on one side of, of the Earth, it can trigger a volcano on the other side of the uh-huh. Earth. So it doesn't have to be a deluge that redeposits metals into the sediment. It only really has to be something that triggers these elements into a wind, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of skews everybody's research as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so then they, then they found out that aluminum and titanium ratios were higher during interglacial periods um, and lower during glacial periods, which means the ratios are different with climate change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's two different so two different scenarios, two different ratios. So that that seemed to be, um, you know, a good indicator that that we had major climate change. So let's look a little bit at meteor swarms and strikes. Uh, remember, we had um, the Maya disappearing between uh, 100 and 1000 AD. That that was their that was their drought periods, and that was the time that, that they were, their civilization was dwindling. Um, we had major meteor swarm strikes in 500 AD and 1000 AD. The 500 AD strike was from Swarm A. Now, we have Swarm A, we have Swarm B, we have Swarm C, because somebody wasn't too creative in calling them anything, so... <laughs> Um, the 500 AD strike um, had impacts in 440 and 534 AD, and those were brought up in the Celtic tales. Mm-hmm. Uh, 70 to 80 percent of Chinese population dies at this point due to one or the other, and this was really close to the fall of Rome, so we have no idea what that, the impact of that was on the, mm-hmm. the, the whole civilization with Rome. Uh, there was also a giant meteorite 2,000 feet across that broke into two and crashed and exploded off of Australia. That thought was thought to be a trigger for the mini ice age in Britain in 535 AD. Um, and then there was a, another meteor comet passenger uh, besides aluminum and titanium. They, they shared a seat with the plague, mm-hmm. uh, which hit uh, with a 10-year winter in 536. Um, which created dust cloud, you know, made a nuclear winter event. It had dry fog blocking the sun, spread debris plumes all around the globe. Mm-hmm. So th- this was, because this was dry fog and a nuclear winter effect, we had another cold drought. So um, 
That brings us to the 1000 AD strike. That was not Swarm B. You're all wrong. This was Swarm C. We are kind of currently having Swarm B, I think. Um, in 1850, um, there were comets that were observed. Halley's came through uh, two times. Uh, there was one around Venus in, 18, in 869, and then there was Swarm C strike. Now that's when that's when things get really dicey, and, and you are part of a pinball game. Sounds like uh, an Israeli operation in the other. <laughs> yeah. Operation Swarm <laughs> C strike. Mossad did it, um, and that was in uh, 900, 986 and 10, 10:30, and. Um, that had strikes in Newfoundland, Labrador, and Greenland, and uh, an oceanic impact. And um, so these strikes, uh, atmospheric debris fields, uh, coincide. Do they have an impact on climate change to increase droughts, uh, to increase deluges? And is it happening now? So deluges. We probably have all seen the, the SOT, uh, amazing footage that has been compiled on a monthly basis, so I think we're pretty aware what what massive flooding looks like and how prevalent it is around. Um, just, just there, I want to interrupt you for a second and recommend all our listeners, if you haven't already, to check out uh, our annual Connecting the Dots series on, on SOTS. We've got a, basically a yearly summary of everything that happened in 2014, and um, yeah, and check out those monthly videos because you get the you get to see it all happening and that you know it's a lot it impacts you in a way that you wouldn't just reading the stats so check out the videos so um what are we experiencing in drought you know we all know that there's you know a big one in California and and in, in the US West but you probably didn't know there were 16 droughts in the US from 1980 uh, cost us about $216 billion in, in drought repair. Oh. <laughs> and um, 56, 56% of the land in the lower 48 states were, were in drought. And just wait. You know, I I just I just got a, a top-secret message from our sources in the CIA, mm-hmm. and they're, they've got a solution, global rectal rehydration. Oh, my God. <laughs> but. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> Thank you, Secret Santa. Um, so, current current conditions um, are they leading up to an ice age? I mean, we we had we seem to have had ice age kind of filtering in through through the drought scenarios with the the cold droughts. Um, could droughts be a precursor? Um, what what are the drought situations today? So, we've got uh, Asia uh, is has a drought in both the extreme east and west of the continent. It's intensifying. Thailand has a drought. It's wrecking the sugar crop. Uh, Africa has a drought uh, in the extreme south in Madagascar. North America has the southwest and the south plains. South America has a drought in eastern Brazil, and Sao Paulo is tapping its water resources right now. Eastern Europe has a drought, and Australia, Queensland, and New South Wales are having the worst dry spill since records were kept, mm-hmm. that's a, every continent is having drought. Mm-hmm. It has to be a factor in today's weather. Um, has to be a factor in the sequences. Mm-hmm. And um, let's let's look 
very quickly at meteors and then just wait but with the with all the droughts there's also a lot of flooding going on too well on yeah. flooding it's like the the opposite side of yeah. the, of a coin so you know you either have it or you don't or you have yeah. the other one or you don't yeah. so. um mm, these big corporations are wanting to privatize water and bottle it and sell it i guess they see some money there well uh there's there's no there's no um money in sand so <laughs> i guess but let's let's just look at at meteors uh, from the American Meteor Society. I looked up today uh, in 2005 there were 468 bolide sightings. In 2014 there were 3,710 sightings. Mm -hmm. uh, the Leonid meteor storm in 1966. Uh, we we're talking about how meteors were you know a carrier of of different things. Uh, it produced 40 meteors per second. Think about it, 40 meteors per second. Um, and, you know, can we trace and connect the exit of civilization to interstellar? Please. <laughs> well, I just want to bring up a couple a couple things that uh, that reminded me of, Darren. Well, first of all, one of the first guys to talk about the the 540 AD kind of events and the the changes in not only uh, climate, but kind of major major climate catastrophes and mass deaths and plagues and stuff like that. Around that time was Mike Bailey, an Irish dendrochronologist, and so he was he's been one of the few people, the kind of new catastrophists that um, see a link between um, cometary bombardments or meteorite explosions, what have you, with um, major climate changes that are that can be detected in ice cores and uh tree ring analysis but also at for the end of civilizations now mike bailey actually wrote a paper a really short one on the mayan calendar and what he found is first of all he looked through the gisp2 the gisp2 uh, ice core records and there and in that in those records there are two spikes for ammonium and nitrate well there are many spikes but two of the biggest ones are at around uh, 2720 or 2720 years ago and 1143 years ago there are also spikes uh there's a big spike in 1908 which was the year of the tunguska explosion so that that right there is uh evidence that towards the possibility that these spikes are also evidence of overhead comet fragment explosions. Now, these two years, 2720 years ago and 1143 years ago, just happened to coincide within, within one year of the Mayan, uh, what they call the Baktun, and those are their cycles in their calendar. So the, the entire Mayan calendar, which went from uh, 3114 B.C., to 2012 AD is 13 Baktun. So it's these uh, groupings of, I believe they're 144,000 days each. Now, those two years, 2720 and 1143, are like the first and the and the fifth in, the, in that cycle. They line up perfectly, well, within one year. And so Bailey um, suggested that what might have happened is that the Mayan civilization, their kind of astronomers, 
had had knowledge of the first event and possibly the second event, and then used that the time between those events to come up with their their calendar. They used those as, the two, as two big marker events because they saw that between the first and the second event, you could divide that into four equal sections of of time, and then just happened to to end it in 2012. So if that was a cyclical event, you know maybe they were onto something and actually recording these these events in a in a cyclical way, and that you know that would while the world didn't end on 2012 like so many hoped it would, um, has been this massive surge in cometary activity that we've been seeing. So there might might be a connection there. But looking at the graph of these ice core samples, there's a spike in 829, 829 AD. This is right in the period of that first big drought right. that the when the, when the mines kind of um, what they like relocated during that time and then then by a couple hundred years later they were gone. And the the closest spike after that that I could see was in I think 1223. But that's just using this one measure of of indicators for for these types of events because like you know like the ammonium or aluminum and titanium those are the ones right yeah. like those signals there are there are various signals that can be looked for um to to find traces of events of these types but i just find it interesting that not only could it have been a kind of cosmic event that caused the mayas the mayan civilization to disappear that they actually built their calendar seemingly on two major events from thousands of years ago I just wanted to bring that up. Um, supposedly, the Maya, just because they had, you know, quote unquote, printed the, the that last um, calendar to end on 2012, mm -hmm. they, uh, in in certain caves or certain certain other, uh, I guess, architectural relics, um, had had the starts of of the next octune. Mm. Um, so that next so, grand cycle. Yeah, they weren't they weren't uh, predicting a doomsday, and there are still Mayans alive. They 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 didn't completely all disappear. Mm -hmm. You know, they go around, they lecture, and they say, "No, we you know <laughs> we're still here. We're still here, and we we didn't uh, predict a doomsday." So. Wow, Karen. So worrying about the economic situation, it seems like small potatoes to what you just outlined. Yeah. Well, uh, choose wisely. <laughs> Anything else on the Mayans? No, I just, I just think it uh, you know it behooves us to to look at um, civilizations that have disappeared. Mm -hmm. uh, why why they disappeared? It certainly wasn't because you know just 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 merely because of of, of a drought or or a, you know, a flood. Mm -hmm. It it could be something much bigger and much broader. And um, you know when we when we start putting together. Uh, all of the things that are going on around us, uh, the droughts, the, com the comet bombardments, uh, se severe temperature shifts, um, you know, re we have resource reduction. Our populations are getting getting bigger. We have solar minimums, um, earth eruptions, pole shifts. I mean, when you put, put those things all, all together, uh, what does that say for our, our civilization? Mm -hmm. You know, what what can we do? What what can we you know be aware of? Um, and what can we recognize so that we just fall? Yeah, because if you look at history, all empires fall and all civilizations die. You know, so there are some there are survivors, of course, all the time that 
carry on, but when you look when you chunk them down into into names and periods like that, they all disappear. Mm-hmm. And it looks like the major pusher of that is the heavens. Yeah. Well, speaking of cometary bombardment and bird flu, <laughs> not that I want to talk about the bird flu, but it's a different kind of comet. Say there's birds <laughs> flying through the air and they fly through some debris and they end up with bird flu. And say that debris drifts down to the earth, can we end up with human flu? <laughs> so why is there so much bird flu? Well, one thing is because birds can't make a fever, and that'll be important later on. But the CDC is saying that the flu this year is unprecedented. It's very widespread. So far, it's high numbers reported in 36 states. Uh, 15 kids have died. Uh, There's one 17-year-old girl in Minnesota who caught the flu, and she was dead within the same week. Uh, also in Minnesota, there's been 577 hospitalization and a record number of specimens were sent for testing in Minnesota. They don't say what the results of those tests are, but it's a lot of specimens. And so the CDC says that this year is bad because the H3N3 strain has mutated. And they also admit that this year's flu vaccine doesn't work which is kind of a silly thing to say because none of the flu vaccines work. But at any rate, this year's flu vaccine does not work because it doesn't match all of the strains. Mm -hmm. So we're having a really, really awful flu season this year, according to the CDC. Not that I believe anything that they say, but how much of this is just their usual hype, maybe just to sell more vaccines? Mm -hmm. I would go for all of it. Usual hype. Because if you look back at last year, they said the same things as this year. Last year, they're saying that the strain is more severe. It's widespread. Nearly all 50 states were reporting high flu activity. Uh, there might be a possible shortage of vaccines. The vaccine manufacturers are trying to keep up with demand. And even last year, that they said that the vaccine that they made doesn't protect against all the strains. Last year was allegedly H1N1. Now it's H3N3. So it's just the same old crap every year. And the flus come every year. So the CDC just tries to cash in on that. So 15 kids died this year. But last year, 105 kids allegedly died from the flu. And the year before was 169 kids. But the CDC, they classify these as flu-related deaths, but they don't say exactly what the other relations are. Like smoking-related deaths. Right. If you smoke and you die, it's a smoking-related death. (laughs) It's related. But the CDC likes to, you know, warp statistics and crunch numbers and things. They don't say that they tie flu and pneumonia together or that they tie flu and other respiratory diseases together, and that's how they come up with their numbers, which are all wrong. And another interesting thing about the CDC is they don't count the number of adults who die from the flu. They count the number of kids. States might count the number of adults, but the CDC doesn't. So if the flu is so dangerous and you really have to get your flu shot to stay protected, they should be keeping track of all of the deaths. So 
you know, mm-hmm. they can make sure that their products are working. But instead, they just guesstimate. They say that every year 36,000 people die of the flu. So the question is, do any of you know anybody who's died from the flu? No. And I think they guesstimate high. Nope. Nope, neither. I don't either, and I've worked in hospitals, and I can't even remember anybody being admitted with the diagnosis of the flu, let alone dying from it. According to the CDC, this 36,000 deaths a year is correct, but the CDC, they get their numbers from the Emerging Infections Program. Now, this program, they only report confirmed flu deaths. Like, they test the sample, and they say that this person has the flu. But the CDC says that this is underreporting, so they take whatever number the Emerging Infections Program gives them, and then they multiply it, so they come up with a number. But I've read that the real number could be close to maybe 500 people mm. a year or maybe not. So, Harrison, well, you yeah. got some statistics. Yeah, so keep keep in mind, first of all, these are CDC statistics. Mm-hmm. So take them with a grain of salt. But so from the statistics, from the stats that I found, um, they this goes back, I believe, something like 30 years. I think from the either late 70s or mid 80s. And so on average, um, let's see, anywhere from they say anywhere from 3,000 to 49,000 people die in a year from the flu in the U.S. Three thousand from three thousand to forty nine thousand. That's a big range. Yeah. So some years you might only have three thousand. On particularly bad years, you'll have you know up to fifty. Oh, covered. Yeah. So, but using those numbers, okay. Well, that's how many deaths. But they also estimate that approximately sixty three million people get infected per year. And so, if you if you look at those just those statistics, and let's take a particularly bad year. So let's just say that 50,000 people die per year, which is probably horribly inflated. But just for the sake of argument, let's say that they're right. Um, that equals a 0.08% chance of dying from from the flu. If you're, if you're an American citizen, you have a 0.08% chance of dying. Is that higher than being killed by a terrorist? Oh, I didn't. <laughs> Check that out. I don't have those on the top of my head. Is that the people who eat Twinkies and, and Mountain Dew? That's that's everyone. So yeah. And um, okay, but if if so, if you look at that number, uh, fifty thousand out of sixty-three million, um, and you and then you look at, for example, something like Ebola. Ebola kills from fifty to ninety percent of the people it infects. So that would be like at least 30 million people dead per year if this was Ebola and not the flu. Mm-hmm. So the chances of of having a serious flu are just minuscule. But if you look at the the deaths or uh if you look at the death statistics, 90% of the people that die from the flu are over 65 years of age. Mm-hmm. So if you're under 65 years of age, your chances of dying from the flu are actually 0.008 uh, rounded. So that's less than one in a hundred thousand chance or odds that you're mm-hmm. going to die from. Now, when you tie that into the so-called or the alleged efficacy of these vaccines, the CDC says that the the vaccines, uh, the flu shots, are 59% effective mm. for adults under the age of 65 
when the strains are matched. So, and first of all, we have to keep in mind that the, because the flu mutates so rapidly, they have to guess which strain is going to be the big one. And so every year it's like this Russian roulette where they're going to, where they guess which strains to put in the vaccines and it's either it's hit or miss. So, the, so that number is totally dependent on whether they guess the right strains or not. So it's blooper flu. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so six, so it's 90% of, or sorry, 59% effective for those under the age of 65. Now it's only 9% effective for those over the age of 65. And remember that 90% of those who die are over 65. So the people that need the most are seniors over 65, mm-hmm. but the vaccine becomes even less effective when you get into that age bracket. Do they have any numbers on how many people over 65 die because of the flu shot? <laughs> no. They wouldn't never put that study out. study that. Are you crazy? I've so, got a... Oh, no. Go ahead. I've got a question. I keep hearing this uh, terminology for the flu being bandied about, but I'm not exactly clear just what is the flu? and is, okay. is it a big gray area or is it really a definitive uh, answer to that? Well, I think I know what the flu is. <laughs> um, okay, who, who's had the flu? Uh, I, I have it. I yeah. had it before. No. You I, never had the flu? No. William? Yeah, I just uh, think I got over one a couple weeks ago. What did it feel like? It felt uh, pretty terrible. You feel a little bit warm. You got a lot of stuffiness, runny nose, sneezing, coughing, mm-hmm. a lot of garbage coming up. Did you feel like you were going to die? No, not at all. Was it unprecedented and widespread? (laughs) (laughs) Just from what I hear. (laughs) Okay, so the flu is basically, this is how they describe it. I I think that they're pretty close because I've had the flu. I've had it a couple times. We'll talk about that. But fever and chills, muscle aches, fatigue, cough, headache, or a runny and stuffy nose. These symptoms come on suddenly, and they last for several days. This sounds like a tragedy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have fever, chills, and muscle aches. Oh, my God, you're going to die. Um, so what is that? Those are just a bunch of symptoms that some people got together, and they decided to name all those symptoms the flu. But basically, that is just the body's process of detoxifying, and it's called the flu. So there's a lot of diseases that have flu-like symptoms. But basically, it just means that your body is trying to get rid of some kind of toxin. So that's what the flu is. And I've had the flu. I think I had the flu last year. And I probably had the flu like in 2003. And I had all those symptoms. But the thing that pissed me off the worst about the flu (laughs) was that it happened on a Friday night (laughs) after I got home from work. So I started feeling bad. My muscles started aching like, oh, maybe I have the flu. And then Saturday didn't feel so good. I would sweat. I'd lay down on the couch, sip some broth, pretty much slept all day. And then Sunday I was better. And I was really mad because I didn't have an excuse to call off work on Monday. (laughs) I know that's the best thing about getting the flu is, you know, don't have to go to school, don't have to go to work. You just lay around all day and sleep. Take it easy. But the problem is people who want to get up and do stuff and still try to go to work and they just feel terrible. Just lay down somewhere like animals do 
Go lay down in a dark corner and don't any, eat anything until you get better. So that's all the fluid is. But they're making it seem like it's this epic disease that you're going to die from, and it's just so terrible. And don't let the flu slow you down. Take you the vaccine. Be, yeah, you have to be vaccinated. So apparently the CDC back in 2003, they didn't think that enough people were motivated to get the vaccine. So they have... They had a communications director, and his name was, I don't know if he's a mister or a doctor, Novak was his name, or Nowak. Uh, he came up with this slide presentation in which he presented to the CDC recipes to foster higher interest and demand in the flu vaccine. So here's his recipe. The first one is express stern and alarm publicly i.e. in the media, predict dire outcomes, and urge influence of vaccination. Does that sound new? Second one is, frame the flu season in terms that motivate behavior. Use phrases like very severe or more severe than last or past year or deadly. Third one, help foster the perception that many people are susceptible to a base case of influenza by using continued reports from health officials and media that influenza is causing severe illness and or affecting lots of people. And lastly, show photographs of children and the families of those affected coming forward to get vaccinated. <laughs> well, all of, all of those make me sick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just so dirty and manipulated. I hate the CDC. But, <clears throat> oh, Oh, gosh. So with these vaccines, do they really work? No, of course they don't. Um, There was a study in The Lancet in 2011, and this was a meta-analysis. So they got a bunch of these studies together, and they were going to show how effect. So how many studies do you guys think that they used? Seven. (laughs) Kind of low, but. Thirty. They used 28. Ah. 28 out of 5,707 that they could have used. What? (laughs) Wait. Yeah, so out of all these 28 studies, here's what they came up with. They said that the vaccine caused a 57% decrease in flu cases. But in their study, they had a non-vaccinated group and they had a vaccinated group. So in the non-vaccinated group, only 97% of the people came down with the flu. No, only 97% of non-vaccinated people. Wait a minute. <laughs> only 3% okay. of the non-vaccinated people got the flu. And then the vaccinated population, only 1.2% didn't catch the flu. So ultimately, this study showed that... Wait, wait 1.2% caught the flu. If you're vaccinated, if you're vaccinated, three percent caught the flu. No, no, no. no. If no. you're not vaccinated, three percent caught the flu. Yes. If you are vaccinated, one point two percent caught the flu. Did, did not, did not. Did so not. they all caught the flu. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> oh my god. Ninety was that? Ninety-eight point eight percent caught the flu. So the study, if you look at it carefully, just showed that out of a hundred people, only one point five, one and a half people avoid the flu with the flu vaccine. Hmm. 
But so aren't the, aren't the vaccines made out of flu virus? I mean, aren't they giving you the flu to get you to They're have a, giving you something. Yeah. I don't know exactly if it's flu. They call it flu, but the flu virus is very teensy weensy tiny and it can only be seen with an electron microscope and it can only live inside of a host alive on its own. So what is it that they're really looking at is my question. Is it just pus and nasal aspirate that they get samples of from people in the hospital and just their dirty secretions and they call it the flu? They find some strange-looking molecule and say, oh, we got it. Yeah. I don't know what it is. But they think that they know what they're doing. At least we all don't have to be rectally hydrated. (laughs) But there's never been a study that compares people who have never, ever, ever been vaccinated in their lives against people who have been vaccinated. And there's never been a study comparing the flu vaccine to natural remedies like vitamin D or vitamin C. And there's never been a study showing the long-term effects of vaccination. Well, I've, I found one related statistic that uh, that said that if you get a flu shot over two years in a row, you, the protection offered lowers. Yes, because you're totally... Mm-hmm. Compromised. You're compromising your immune system mm-hmm. with every flu shot that you get. So, yeah. And and they're, and they're cumulative. Vaccinations are cumulative. They stay in your system. And the, all of the evil things that they use to convey the vaccine into your body mm-hmm. stay in there. Mm-hmm. So when people get the flu and they say, the CDC says that they are dying from the flu, what is it that they're actually dying from? Maybe some people do die from the flu. I don't know, but is it they're dying from the CDC? <laughs> is it the treatment that they're getting while they have the flu? And this brings us back to fevers and why birds die so much of bird flu. They are not able to make fevers in their bodies. So when people get fevers, they have the flu. Their doctor tells them, "Oh, take some Tylenol." Take some ibuprofen, take some NyQuil, take some paracetamol. That's for all our British friends out there. Um, so what's wrong with bringing down your fever? Okay, here's, here's the pun of the day. <laughs> One flu over the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> Thanks for that, Karen. <laughs> so the benefit of a fever is that it keeps your the viruses inside your body from replicating, and it helps you clear off your toxins. So any fever that is over 101 degrees Fahrenheit, I don't know, what is that in Celsius, Harrison? Uh, Sorry, (laughs) my inner calculator is turned off. So if you have a fever over 101, it stops the telomeres on your RNA from unzipping and replicating itself. So if you have the flu and you have a fever and you stop it by taking Tylenol, the virus is going to keep replicating and your immune system is going to go batshit crazy and it's going to attack all the healthy cells in your body. This is called a cytokine storm and this is what causes death. So people have the flu, they're taking Tylenol, they're taking aspirin, they're encouraged to eat. I'm sure you guys have all heard feed a cold, starve the flu. I say starve a cold, starve the flu. But if your liver is too busy with digesting food that you don't need at the moment, it's not going to have resources to detox. So keep your fever and don't eat anything. Just sip some broth. What was the temperature there? 
over 101? That's uh, 38.3 degrees Celsius. Okay. I just had to do the calculation in my mind. It took me a while. Thanks. And then you have uh, Tammy flu. Everybody's heard of that. Yeah. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld. God bless him. <laughs> so people take some Tammy flu, and of course that's been shown to be completely ineffective in treating the flu. And it has some really awful side effects, severe stomach cramps, nightmares, hallucinations, diarrhea, strange behavior, suicide, and death. And call me crazy, but all that sounds a hell of a lot worse than the flu. It sounds like what Donald Rumsfeld inspires in me. <laughs> <laughs> You're taking a little bit of Donald Rumsfeld with you when you take Tammy flu. So only two studies are showing that Tammy flu is effective, but nobody knows where those studies are. They disappeared. Where are they? And it turns out that Roche, the ones who, the pharmaceutical company who makes Tamiflu, they hired ghostwriters to write those studies. So not only are they fake, but they're missing and they're fake. Hmm. So, yeah, that's the flu. Don't be afraid. Don't take the vaccines. Um, they have a new vaccine out, by the way. It's called Fusilvax. And they grow the virus on dog kidney cells. Um, I like dogs, but I don't like them that much. And, um, that's besides the squalene and the aluminum and the thimerosal and the polysorbate 80 and uh, formaldehyde, all that that's in the flu vaccine. So vaccines don't work. They cause illnesses. Autism, Guillain Barre, Alzheimer's, encephalitis, narcolepsy, death. That's not even all of it. Um, so the flu sounds pretty good to me right now. I'd rather have the flu than any of this stuff. So the takeaway message is don't believe the hype. They say this stuff every year. I don't know. Maybe with all the commentary fallout, maybe that might bring us something. But I wouldn't believe whatever the CDC says. So if you get sick with the flu, stay your ass home, get in the bed, rest, keep a fever, sleep, drink some broth, sweat, take some vitamin C, and be glad that your immune system works well enough to detoxify yourself. Yeah. All right. Thanks for that, Tiff. Looking to get the flu. Me too. I need uh, a break. Actually, I actually haven't had the flu for, for years. Maybe it has something to do with, well, I've, actually, you know, since I changed my diet, mm -hmm. you know, I kind of, I went through a few stages, you know, starting out with kind of a paleo diet and then moving to kind of full-blown ketogenic diet. But before that, every year I'd come down with something like you described where mm -hmm. I was just kind of out for a day, maybe a day and a half or two days. Yeah. And then it was gone. No, before that, I had a, you know, a, probably a few big flus where I was, out for like maybe up to a week, but and you know vomiting and yeah. fatigue and fever, but uh, but those those few the yearly thing that I was getting probably like five to or maybe six to you know five to ten years ago, mm -hmm. it was just like extreme muscle fatigue and you know I I could barely move the sensation on your skin like all the all your clothes make your skin hurt mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. But uh, no, I haven't had anything like that since since changing over. So I, th I think that might have something to do with it. Yeah, there's been this. Well, 
it was a debate at one time, but uh, between Louis Pasteur, who came up with the germ theory, and I think his name was Andre Duchamp, and he said it was the terrain. Your inner terrain determines whether or not you get sick. Germs don't cause disease. They're the result of disease. Mm. So keep your terrain healthy, folks. Don't be floozies. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Enough of the flu. Well, uh, Kent brought up the something about the CIA in his call, so I want to bring that up again. So recently on Twitter, the CIA admitted that it was responsible for at least half of the reported UFO sightings in the 1950s and 60s due to its secret high-altitude reconnaissance flights. So their quote said, reports of unusual activity in the skies in the 50s, it was us. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're really cool, guys. Um so while acknowledging at the same time that the section on UFOs attracted the most attention on its website in 2014. So the CIA is saying they're responsible for all no. of the UFO sightings? Well, their tweet was misleading. Whoa. Their tweet, you know, they're kind of like puffing themselves up. Oh, that was us. Mm-hmm. But in the actual report, um, the, the it gave a link to a heavily redacted 272-page document called the CIA and the U2 program, 1954 to 1974. And uh, in the report, the figure was actually about half of the sightings. So they're saying about half of the UFO sightings from the 50s and 60s were actually U2 flights. Um, So the report said, high-altitude testing of the U2 soon led to an unexpected side effect, a tremendous increase in reports of unidentified flying objects. The CIA said that many of the people who reported UFO sightings around this time were commercial pilots who caught occasional glimpses of the high-altitude aircraft while flying at considerably lower altitudes. The silver wings of the U-2 spy planes, quote, would catch and reflect the rays of the sun and appear to the airliner pilot 40,000 feet below to be fiery objects. Um, So in general, the report um, admitted to being responsible for more than half of the UFO sightings. And, of course, left unmentioned is what was responsible for the other half. But um, even looking at this, to say that that half of the UFO sightings in the 50s and 60s were because of U-2 planes is just utterly ridiculous. It's just absurd. The the sightings, the, the acknowledged unidentified sightings from the 50s and 60s and from every period in which there is data and has been that has been analyzed, these sightings are sightings that cannot be explained by even even plausible explanations for something like a high-altitude aircraft. Criteria for that are used in um, in the analysis and the in the documentation, the research of UFOs, eliminates something that just looks like a plane. What we're talking about when you think about UFO sightings, if you read the the reports, even if you read the Condon report, which was a whitewash, the the conclusion of the white of the Condon report was a whitewash. But if you actually read the the analysis done by the scientists on it, they acknowledge all the unidentifieds, how many unidentifieds there are, how enigmatic and unexplained they are, and they describe them. If you actually read reports, you're talking about things like seeing a, a literal flying saucer, you know. 50 feet away, hovering around in the air, doing crazy stuff, or, you know, several hundred feet in the air doing um, 
right angle turns at full speed, going full speed and coming to a complete stop instantaneously without breaking any sound barriers or extreme accelerations without breaking the sound barriers. We're talking about some crazy stuff in the skies. If you look at what a U-2 plane looks like when it's flying up at however many thousand feet, it's a tiny light in the sky moving in a straight line. That is not a good UFO report. So for the for the CIA to say that 50%, more than half of the UFO sightings in the, 50, in the 50s and 60s were people seeing a plane, you know, tens of thousands of feet in the air going in a straight line is just insulting. What yeah. about all the UFO sightings before the 50s? Exactly. Before <laughs> the 50s or after. I was looking at a bunch of pictures of what U-2 planes look like, and the vast majority of them are painted black. There's there's a few of them that were silver. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this thing about pilots seeing reflections, that, that just doesn't come across as very genuine. No. And and, it, and it's insulting to the people that witness these things, especially the airline, like the, the pilots themselves. These pilots are smarter than that. And if you, again, if you actually read their reports, the things that they would see... It's not some light high up in the sky that might look like a fiery trail or a light going through the sky. Like, if things they report, like I said, are weird. I'm talking about, you know, they're flying a plane, they see a strange light that comes, you know, in front of them as they're flying the plane at however many, you know, 100 miles per hour. And the so they've got this light. The light will move in... You know, so keep in mind, they're moving at the same speed. The light that they see in front of the plane might accelerate, but and and get a bit further away and then come back. It's like it's it's positioning itself relative to a moving aircraft, and then it might circle around the craft as they're both moving at the same speed, go off in the distance and come back, or it might be coming head on to the plane and only you know it's kind of like a a game of uh, chicken, and then only at the last second the UFO will veer off course and freak out these pilots. So these like. These pilots saw some weird stuff, and it was not a U-2 plane way up in the sky. So, sorry, CIA, but uh, I, I give you nine zeros for that one. <laughs> I wonder what the point was for the CIA to even come out with this, especially now. Um, yeah, I mean, they've had a policy since, I think, 1953 of debunking and ridiculing UFO sightings. Um, so I think that that project is just still in full gear because the UFO problem is one that's been around forever and it's not going away. So as a threat to national security, you don't just throw out your national security protocols and uh, the, the measures that you have in effect to deal with this problem because UFOs haven't gone away. The, the CIA has done something about it and has to keep doing something about it because they haven't gone away. Well, is there going to be an uptick in UFO sightings, and they're going to? That's what I was thinking. The <laughs> yeah, going to step in and say, "Oh, it's us, it's us." Well, and and also, um, so for kind of armchair skeptics or just even you know regular people that don't know what to think about UFOs, they like having a plausible explanation. Like, oh, that's what it was. You know, okay, good. Yeah, now I don't have to think too hard. Balloon. Yeah, you know that makes my brain feel good, and so. By saying this now, the CIA says, says this, and most people are just going to see the tweet that they're responsible for the, all those UFOs that you saw. They're not going to read the report and find out, oh, it was just over half. And they're not going to read the actual reports that were used originally that said that, well, that's impossible. 
these were not YouTube flights that people were seeing. So, but they're going to go away with your, the impression that, oh, it's, it's just the CIA. They're testing out some new technology. Oh, and if you think about today, they've probably got some super high tech now that probably would look like those UFO sightings that people were seeing in the 50s or even the 40s. So, on the one hand, you get any kind of like genuine, unexplained aerial anomaly that people would see. Now they've got the explanation. Well, and well, they've had it for years, but now they've got it reinforced that oh, that's probably just the CIA doing mm-hmm. some top secret um, technology to to protect us from the evil terrorists. But at the same time, like like Kent was saying, they could be doing some weird stuff that gets that that people mistake fireballs and comet fragments. So if people see weird things in the sky, if they see actual fireballs or actual comet fragments, uh, it's just the CIA testing some new missiles or something, right? Or somebody's gotten too close to the truth and they want the population to um, believe something else. Yeah, and actually there were a few, well, there were several really fascinating videos that came out in 2014 of UFO sightings. Um, you know, just describing them doesn't do them justice. So you can just search. Um, we've had a few. We've put a, a bunch of them up on SOT. But uh, there was a, some weird stuff seen in Hong Kong. Uh, well, a lot of news channels caught UFOs. There, so there was uh, the BBC caught some weird ones. Um, that I think that was the Hong Kong one. But they also recorded some other weird UFOs in another place. They uh, uh, a news team in Breckenridge. Uh, Colorado, I believe, they had they got reports of several people seeing UFOs in this small town, and so then they went out to investigate and they set up their cameras and they actually caught them on camera. And there's just these stationary white balls just hovering in the sky, and they'd they'd have the camera on the tripod just trained on this object, and it would just be stationary for like minutes at a time, like ten, twenty minutes, thirty minutes, and then it would move off to somewhere else. So just really crazy stuff um, there. And um, also a couple weird stories came out in 2014. Like there was the the ex, I think, was he Lockheed Martin scientist? That um, kind of, he died. And after his death, he had released, like the, or he had recorded some interview where he talked about a friend of his that was at Area 51. And, you know, it, it's impossible to verify. This guy seemed genuine. He seemed to really believe it. The story that he was telling, and he had all these photographs, but, you know, there were questions with his story, and um, you know, tons of attempts to debunk it. Some, I think, more successful than others. And then there was the whole Roswell slides thing. This thing's been going on for a while. All these um, um, UFO researchers, it came out that they, they had found some person an old couple had had died and left behind uh, just a chest of old knickknacks and stuff in their attic. And the person who came into this, um, I, I don't know if they had bought the house and it was there or something like that, but the they had found in this chest, kind of like tucked into it, you know, hidden, slightly hidden away in the chest, uh, a file of um, slides, like pictures of what looked to be this alien autopsy. And so um, these these um, a group of ufologists that are you know pretty well known in the field they've been 
allegedly because no no real information has been released yet, but they've been researching these. And Tom Carey, one of the big Roswell researchers, came out, I think, in November saying that they were planning on releasing the photographs um, this year and releasing the, the results of their studies. Apparently, they've done some kind of analysis on the film and found that it was genuine, like, 1947 film. But on the other hand, one of the main markers for telling the age of that type of film, they reuse the same markers, like, every 10 or 20 years. So how they knew it, they haven't released how they know it was from 1947 and not from, like, you know, some decade after that. So, again, like most things in the UFO field, the big stories, we'll just have to wait and see if, if this one plays out well at all. Uh, in the future. And of course, even if it were genuine, as soon as some more details are released, there's going to be a huge debunking campaign because no matter what the story is, if it's true or false, it gets a giant debunking campaign. So in that case, you just have to kind of think for yourself and try to figure it out. That's all I wanted to say about UFOs. It's going to get more interesting with with uh, the different kinds of drones that are out because there's going to be flying yeah. objects all over the place. Mm-hmm. So the CIA can claim this too. It was drones. Wasn't UFO. Yeah, UFOs. So extraterrestrials, maybe, and the extraterrestrial threat of cometary bombardment and the diseases they carry and the civilizations they destroy. That's what, who knows, maybe 2015 we'll get to see some extraterrestrial action. Uh, One of the things that came up in my research with the the Maya thingy was that um, there was a hemorrhagic fever called Cocolitzli, C-O-C-O-L-I-Z-T-L-I, um, and this this happened back in 1576, and it had uh, it was a hemorrhagic fever very similar to Ebola and the dengue fever. Dengue fever. Yeah, and uh, it it returned um, a whole bunch of times between 1559 and 1642 AD. So, um, and at one point, uh, it killed off. Uh, of the native population of Mexico, which was about 5 million people. So mm-hmm. this Ebola, it may not be the same strains, but it was a, a similar similar fever. So mm-hmm. those kinds of things have, have been around. And um, as we know, a lot of the strains of very weird diseases have come from uh, interstellar yeah. uh, carriers. So they've been passengers, and um, we have been their new host. <laughs> One thing I forgot to mention when we were talking about uh, the Air Asia flight and the threat to flights from uh, meteorites and things like that is that when the what was the Air France flight? Uh, oh no 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 this was this was back in 1996 after I think it was TWA 800 and in the New York Times a physics and astronomer professor physics and astronomy professors. Uh, Charles Haley and David Helfand, they published a letter there where they calculated that based on the known statistics for 1996 and the period before then, that in the 30-year period leading up to 1996, there was a 1 in 10 chance 
of a plane being struck by a meteorite. Wow. And so if you consider that that was a 1 in 10 chance over 30 years based on the numbers for that time period, mm-hmm. and then if you consider how much those numbers have changed now, the chances go up. So the chances of, well, we can't guesstimate mm-hmm. without the statistics, but just to say that the chances are probably a lot higher now than they were back then. So just something to keep in mind for when thinking about plausible explanations for, some, for things like that. Unless anyone else has anything to add, I think we're going to call it a night. Yeah? All right. So yeah, check out the Connecting the Dots for this year. Check out the videos. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for Behind the Headlines with Joe and Neil. And it's been great. Been fun. So yeah, everyone take care, and we'll see Happy you next week. Year. Aloha. Enjoy the ride. All right, bye bye everyone. <laughs>